I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And welcome back to Unheard. I am still Florence Reed. Here's a question. Who's afraid of artificial intelligence? Right now, the answer seems to be just about everyone. With large language models and deep fake images appearing on the internet, we're getting an idea of what the future might look like. And for many, this seems like a sinister one. Even the program developers themselves, the people who are in charge of this technology, are warning of the dangers of accelerating towards what they call the singularity. But one voice has been absolutely resolute in its rejection of this mass panic, and it comes from the godfather of augmented reality himself. His name is Jaron Lanier. He's a computer scientist and futurist, fresh from Silicon Valley, and he is developing cutting-edge artificial intelligence at Microsoft. So he's in the belly of the beast, you could say. He recently wrote a provocative article in The New Yorker called There Is No AI, and he thinks this hysteria might be misplaced. He joins us live from the West Coast to tell us more about it. Just to start, I really wanted to get you in the studio, Jaron, because you have really stood against the crowd on this issue of AI in the last few weeks. You've been writing about how doomerist and at times hysterical your colleagues have been, but you yourself think that perhaps humans might be the problem rather than the machines themselves. So explain to me a bit more why you've taken this position. My um, difference with colleagues is that I think the way we characterize the technology can have an influence on our <laughs> options and abilities to handle it better. And I think uh, treating AI as like this new alien intelligence reduces our choices and has a way of paralyzing us. Whereas an alternate take on it, which is it's a new form of social collaboration where it's just made of us, it's a giant mashup of human expression, um, opens up channels for addressing issues and makes us more sane and makes us more competent. And so I make a pragmatic argument to not think of the new technologies as alien intelligences, but instead as human social collaborations. But you see what I'm getting at here, which is that taking a pragmatic view over a hysterical view, someone might say, well, you work for a company that will produce the tech that we should be hysterical about. So so why should we be listening <laughs> to someone who profits off this yeah. technology? Well, you know, I have a really unusual role in the tech world, and it's uh, it shouldn't be unusual. I think it should be more common. But essentially, I am speaking my mind honestly, even though I'm on the inside of the castle instead of on the outside throwing stones at the castle. In my opinion, both positions should be well manned. Uh, I uh, I don't think there's any perfect way to handle anything in particular. There, one is always somewhat compromised. And um, 
Microsoft and I have come to an accord where uh, I have uh, what you might call academic freedom. I speak my mind. I speak things as I see them. Um, but I also don't speak for the company. And we, we make that distinction. And um, it allows me to maintain my public intellectual life, but also uh, work inside. Uh, I don't necessarily... Uh, find agreement with everybody I work with, uh, nor do I find absolute disagreement. I, I find it's actually rather complex. Uh, for instance, Sam Altman from OpenAI really liked my New Yorker piece. I don't think he agrees with it entirely, but he said he actually agrees with it mostly. That's great. Um, I, uh, I hope it's of use for somebody like me to be working inside. Um, it's not perfect, but you know the thing is, I don't believe in perfection, and I, 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 um, I have to object to the notion that um, people are trying to be perfect. That you know, you must, you must not have any contradictions in one's life because I just don't think you can be human without contradictions. I think it's fine to try to reduce contradictions, and I think particularly fragrant and horrible ones should be condemned. But I also think we need to be a little. Uh, we need to be a little um, open or fuzzy about how we define each other's roles and how we judge each other uh, to find a way forward. You spoke about contradictions there. I suppose the central contradiction of a lot of your, your colleagues who are on the more, I suppose, doomerist side of this argument is that they will speak about the, the fears that they have, the deep existential fears about working with this technology, and then continue in a, in a conversation. I've been watching lots of these kind of long-form podcasts with people like Sam Altman, who you mentioned, and then will continue to speak about the research they're doing after saying that it might bring about the end of humanity. So this is the kind of central contradiction that I think the normal person who is not sat in a computer science lab can't quite wrap their head around. Why do they carry on doing it? Yeah, I um, I think that's a really important... <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, look, um, I am part of a community of, that we call, you know, tech culture, and it's weird. We're weirdos, you know? And no, no. The question <laughs> you just asked actually cuts to the very heart of our weirdness. And um, I have tried to understand that myself for decades. And I think um, part of it is we kind of simultaneously live in a sort of a science fiction universe where we're living out the science fiction we grew up with. And so if you grew up on the Terminator movies and the Matrix movies and Commander Data from Star Trek and so on, um, naturally what you want to do is realize this idea of AI. You know, it just seems like your destiny. But then another part of you is thinking, wow, but... Um, in most of those stories, with Commander Data being the exception, in most of them, this was horrible for mankind. And so it feels sort of responsible to acknowledge that it could be horrible for mankind. And yet at the same time, you keep on doing it. It's weird, you know. And I, I believe the approach that I've proposed of not thinking of what we're doing as alien intelligences that we're creating, but rather... Um, as social collaboration is the way through that problem because it's a way of framing it that's equally valid but actionable and and I just think much more sane and realistic and uh, uh, but you know within the tech world giving up 
those childhood science fiction fantasies that we grew up with is just really hard for people. It's just I've been thinking I've been thinking recently about how we called the internet the wild west in the in the early days the kind of 90s and noughties and actually that fantasy of the cowboy the little boy who dresses up as a cowboy and goes and finds manifest destiny in the frontiers the reality of that situation was was deeply troubling I I think that's true now I grew up in rural New Mexico uh at in the 60s when it was still not that economically developed. So I actually got to experience a little bit of the tail end of the Wild West. And I can assure you that you're correct. It was miserable and it's not something anybody would want. But the version of it in the movies is very appealing. And it does bring up a sort of a strange uh, gender identity connection because this is a little bit of a little boys thing. It's a little bit of a, uh, um, I, you know, what you, there are, um, <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you a story. Recently, I was on a prominent morning, I won't say which one, but I was on a prominent morning TV talk show in the US. And one of the hosts was a woman who asked me about this. Uh, you know, like, it just seems like there's a lot of male fantasy in the AI world. Shouldn't there be more women AI leaders? And I said, well, you know, there are some sp spectacular women AI leaders. And actually, there does tend to be some sort of a difference where the women seem to be a little more humanistic and have a different approach. In the YouTube, in the YouTube version of that, they cut out the whole exchange about women. And I I called and asked about it, and they said, well, it just seemed like a niche question, so we cut it out. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a very central question. You hear these men saying, look, we've created this thing, and it, it might turn around and destroy us all. And I think, well, you could only hear that from someone who's never had a child, because that's just the experience of having a baby. Back in the 80s, my mentor was Marvin Minsky, who is probably the single most influential author of the way uh, we think about AI these days as, as coming alive. Not the only one, but probably the most prominent one. And uh, we used to love arguing about it. And when I was a kid, I always, I, I always used to say AI is really just womb envy. You know, it's just... Uh, it's just men wishing and and uh, actually um, having had a child and seeing what what it's actually like for a woman to bear a child. I no longer have womb envy. I now appreciate <laughs> it's actually put you off alive. It's a rather difficult process for the mother, and I I, uh, I didn't know that when I was a young man. And I, I I would think anybody who's actually gone through having a child would lose their womb envy pretty quickly. And it tends to be men who haven't had kids yet who have who. <laughs> <It's the day. laughs> might have that desire to create life at the computer. So well, it's good yeah. to know our whole universe hinges on men with kind of daddy issues in their mid forties. That's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Welcome to our world. <laughs> Let's return now, just for a second, to these two different types of artificial intelligence that you distinguish in your article in the New Yorker. One of which is this alien entity that many your colleagues seem to attribute a spark of life to, and your version, which is in fact just a network of connections, connections between things that already exist, things that are created by humans. So it's not a generative force in your definition. Tell me more about that. Yeah, sure. So one way you can think of AI is as, or look, I should say, the term AI is a sort of a, a, a very wiggly where uh, it, it's applied to all kinds of things. And in fact, lately I've been uh, especially advising students to call whatever they're doing AI since it's fashionable to help them get positions and funding and stuff. So it can mean many things. But usually these days when we talk about AI, we talk about these large model AIs uh, like the GPT programs. And um, 
what they are is they're a giant mashup of human creation. So for instance, if you ask one of these programs to create you uh, a new image, you know, like um, I'd, I'd like to see London as if it were a cross between London and Gorwat or some crazy thing like that. It can probably synthesize that, but the, the way it does it is by uh, using the classifiers that it uses to identify the images that match your um, uh, the components of your request and mashing them up by randomly refining and refining an image that still works for all the classifiers. So it's actually a pretty simple idea. And in fact, um, the interior of these systems, the math is almost embarrassingly simple to my mind, but it happens at such a stupendous scale and actually managing the whole scale so it can happen quickly is, is not so simple, but the basic idea is pretty simple. Uh, so you have this way of mashing things up that's constrained according to the principles that you use to recognize the components in the first place. And so you can combine things. You can say, give me a lesson in calculus, but in the language of a pirate or whatever, crazy stuff like that. And it'll synthesize these things by maintaining the constraints from the whatever uh, correlations had allowed the program to recognize the components in the first place. So it creates this meaningful, or not meaningful, that's the wrong word, because we don't know what meaning is. It's, it creates a, a uh, expected mashup of things from people, and that's never existed before. Now, I happen to think that's a great capability with a lot of uses. You know, like I, I love the idea of computers just getting more flexible. Like it, it, it creates the possibility where you could say, can you reconfigure this computer experience to work for somebody who's colorblind or whatever right on the fly instead of demanding that people conform to computer design? So I actually think there's a potential in this flexibility to really improve computation on many, many levels and make it much better for people. Um, but the thing is, if you want to, you can per perceive it as a new intelligence. And to me, if you perceive it as a new intelligence, what you're really doing is shutting off yourself you're shutting down yourself in order to worship the code which i think is exactly the wrong thing and it makes you uh, less able to make good decisions so um if we go back to uh you've probably heard of the turing test uh which was one of the original thought experiments about uh artificial intelligence way way back there's this idea that if a human judge can't distinguish whether something came from a person or a computer, then we should treat the computer as, as having equal rights, as perhaps Turing should have been treated, you know? And um, uh, the problem with that is that it's also possible that the judge became stupid. Like, like there's no guarantee that it wasn't the judge who changed rather than the computer. And so the problem with treating the output of GPT as if it's an alien intelligence, which many people enjoy doing, is that you can't tell whether the humans are letting go of their own standards and sort of becoming stupid to make the machine seem smart because it's all very subjective. There's no absoluteness about that. So we, we haven't hit this moment that I think all of us kind of feel that we're waiting for. We feel that we're on the brink of it, or maybe we're just being told we're on the brink of it, where in a dark room somewhere in California, there will be a computer that talks back, that has a kind of sentience. The sentience of others is always a matter of faith right? There's no way to be certain about whether someone else has interior experience in the way that you do, all right? I presume that you do, but I can't know. 
and there is a kind of a mystical or almost supernatural element in which we have internal experience um and or at least i do you i but i can't make you believe i do you know you have to just believe on your own that i do and uh the thing is that faith is a very precious thing and um there's no absolute argument that you should or shouldn't believe that another person has interior experience or sentience or consciousness or a machine or whatever i mean i do think faith is not fundamentally rational, but there is a pragmatic argument, as I keep on repeating, to placing your faith in other people instead of machines, if you care about people at all. If you want people to survive, you have to kind of place your faith in the sentience of them instead of in machines as a pragmatic matter, not as a a matter of absolute truth, um, which we can't access. Is really the only distinguisher then between me asking you, are you sentient? And you replying yes. And me asking a machine, are you sentient? And the re- machine replying yes. Is the only distinction there a faith in the power of the human soul versus the fact that that computer is just amalgamating information? Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's it's a, a matter of faith that can that has pragmatic implications. So um, uh, I think the quest for absolute ultimate truth is not really viable. Uh, So there was a period hundreds of years ago where philosophers grappled with this about God and, uh, you know, this question of whether you can absolutely prove whether God exists or not. And I think um, almost everyone who's considered that question has decided that that's a matter of faith, um, but doesn't, doesn't have an absolute truth value that you can establish through logic or empiricism. Um, I think we're at the point where we have the same issue with one another, where there's no absolute proof uh, through logic or experiment about what's going on in terms of experience within other people. Uh, However, once again, um, just to say something is a matter of faith doesn't mean that the, the choice of faith is entirely arbitrary because it can be pragmatic as well. So if, uh, not believing in people increases the chance that people will be harmed, which I think is the case with this technology, uh, or relatively not believing in people, to believe that machines are the same as people, I think increases the chance that people will be harmed. So uh, in addition to whatever other reasons you might have, perhaps sentimental ones for having a faith in people, there's a pragmatic argument that joins them. And I think cumulatively, we should believe in people over computers. But that's not an absolute argument based on logic or empiricism, which I don't think is available to us. But I do think that uh, pragmatic arguments there's a bit of a skyhook thing here, like, um, and it's a little bit like the problem of why should you stay alive instead of committing suicide? It's applied to the whole species. Why should we continue this human project? Why does it matter? Well, it is a matter of faith. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I come to something that's a little bit like uh, Pas- the the, the uh, argument attributed to Pascal. So there's this notion that uh, you might as well believe in God just in case it's real and there's heaven and hell. I don't I don't buy that particular argument. I'm not concerned about heaven or hell. However, I do think the continuation of us people in this timeline, in this world, in this physicality is something I'd like to commit to. I think it, it it's important. I think we might be something special. And so 
kind of in that way, I'd like to apply faith to us and give us a chance. And that that does involve demoting computers in this case. But um, it's not just that. When we demote computers, we can use them better. We can make this, like, as I pointed out in the New Yorker article, demoting AI allows us to not mystify it. And that allows us paths to explaining it, to controlling it, to understanding it, to using it as a scientific exploration of what language is and all kinds of things. There's so many reasons to demote it that are practical that the faith in it as a mystical being just actually seems kind of stupid and wasteful and pathetic to me. But I don't know, you know, I haven't convinced everybody. But can we demote something that has potentially more power than us already? You know, can we actually say, look, we're going to drag computers down the hierarchy of being when they are already in control of so much of our lives? Most of us are subordinated to computers in our everyday lives. I mean, I'm sitting here literally with my computer. Okay, close that thing right now. Close that thing right now. (laughs) People are capable of being self-destructive, idiotic, wasteful, ridiculous, with or without computers. However, we can do it a little more efficiently with computers because we can do anything a little more efficiently with computers. As um, as is well known, I've been very publicly concerned about the dehumanizing elements of social media algorithms and the algorithms on social media that have caused outbreaks of uh, sort of uh, elevated. These things always existed in humanity, but there's just a little more vanity, paranoia, uh, irritability, and and that increment is enough to change politics, to change mental health for a lot of people, um, to change safety for a lot of people, especially in impoverished circumstances around the world. Um, It's just made the world worst you know, worse incrementally. Um, So, and, and the algorithms in social media are really dumbass simple. I mean, there's really not a lot there. (laughs) These are a little better um, algorithms with a lot more data. And so if we can screw ourselves up with the previous generation, surely we can also screw ourselves up even worse with this. And so um, I think your, your framing though, that it's more powerful than us is incorrect. I think I, it's really just dumb stuff. It's really up to us to decide how it fits into human society still. Um, the capacity for human stupidity is great. And as I, I keep on saying, hard to distinguish from the, you know, it's only a matter of faith whether we call it human stupidity or machine intelligence. They're they're indistinguishable logically. So um, I I do think the threat is real. I'm not... I I I'm not anti-doomist in a sense. I just I just ask us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To consider... What is the way of thinking that improves our our abilities, that improves our thinking, that that gives us more options, that gives us more clarity? Um, And it does involve demoting the computer. Um, There's a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do technically. Uh, We can create explanations for what so-called machine intelligence is doing by tracing it back to the human origins. So... um, there have been a number of very uh, famous instances of chatbots, um, indeed our chatbots, the GPT uh, bots, um, getting really weird with people. Uh, and But, you know, the form of explanation should be to say, well, actually the bot was at that point uh, parroting some stuff from a soap opera, from some fan fiction, from some other weird stuff. And that kind of explanation should always be available. That should always be there. So you can look at it and say, oh, that's where it got it. That's what's going on. And uh, uh, in my opinion, there should be an economy in the future where if there's really valuable output from an AI, the people whose contributions were particularly important should actually get paid. Like I actually believe there's a new uh, extension to society that's very creative and interesting rather than this dismal prospect of everybody being put out of work. I, I think that we can invert that and make it better. But that's the same thing as having better explanations, better understanding, more transparency. But but transparency in a mashup technology can only come from revealing the people whose expressions were mashed up. I mean, to me, this is just actually kind of simple. But that 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 um, technical work to make that revelation practical isn't completed at this time, uh, but it could be. And also, policy if policy is going to be based on the idea that we now have this new supernatural artificial entity, there's no sensible way to resolve that. There's no way that that becomes clear. But this other way of thinking does provide avenues for clarity and concreteness. Well, one thing you didn't do was sign that kind of open letter demanding for a hiatus in accelerating AI development, which was signed by Elon Musk and and Sam Altman, who we spoke about earlier. Why didn't you sign that? Why was that not appealing to you as an idea, if we want to demote this technology in some way? My reason for not signing it is that it fundamentally still mystified the technology. It still took this position that it's like this new alien entity. And it also left open this very... When you think it's an alien entity, there's no way to know what would help. Like, if you have an alien entity, what what regulation is good? Like, if you say, well, it shouldn't hurt people, um, this was an idea that was uh, 
first proposed perhaps by Isaac Asimov, or one of the early ex explanations was uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, science fiction of long, long ago about the laws of robotics. The problem is that these this idea is very vague. Like, how do you define harm? What is it? You can't, because these, as much as uh, the GPT programs impress people, they don't actually represent ideas. We don't know what meaning is. We don't know... Uh, <sighs> We don't know how to define these things. All we can do is mash things up so that they conform with classifiers. So they can't do, they can't do philosophy. They can't do the work of thinking. They could mash up philosophers in ways that might be interesting. If you say, um, you know, uh, do a combined essay as if De Descartes and Derrida collaborated or something, something might come out that's provocative or interesting, but there's no actual representation inside there. And um, uh, so getting provocative or interesting mashups is great and I think useful and helpful, but you can't set policy by it because there's not actually any meaning. And, and we see that every day when we try to, um, there's been a lot of work in AI safety and fairness and other concepts where you try to keep people from misusing the AIs, but then it becomes a game where all the people out there who have access to it try to count, countervene, you know, and, and come up with some nasty version of it, even though you tried to prevent it. And you can't because when you try to prevent it, all you're doing is coming up with some sort of surface features that you think are associated with bad behavior of humans, but humans can always kind of route around those to find other ways to express bad behavior. There's no fundamental representation inside these things. And, and we just have to accept that as reality. We don't know what meaning is. We, and we can't represent meaning. But so much, so much here of your argument re relies on the idea that we, if we define this technology differently, then we will have more power over it, or at least we'll have more understanding of it. And so we won't have so much hysteria and fear, which could lead to this kind of catastrophic mistake that you say could actually end with disaster. But I suppose you might say, well, aren't we just trying to make ourselves feel better there? We're just comforting ourselves by saying, look, no, no, don't worry. It's not an alien technology. It is simply uh, an amalgamation of human connections that already exist. Are we, are we not just self-comforting here with a kind of bit of rhetoric about it being this human technology rather than something we can't control? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, it's actually um, proposing this more concrete and clarified path of action is very demanding of people. It's not comforting at all. It demands that everybody involved on a technical or regulatory level do much more than they have. And so it's actually um, probably not putting people in a comfortable situation. I suspect many people would prefer uh, the mystical version because it actually lets them off the hook. The mystical version just lets you sit there and, 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 apprehend and express awe at our, our own inventions or something. But the stuff I'm talking about demands action. And so it's actually, um, uh, I think, puts pressure on people and it's not comforting and it shouldn't be. Do you think humans need to take more accountability for their part in developing a potentially malign form of AI? Um, well... I'm talking here about the actual malignancy of it. You know, we, sp we speak a lot about it kind of going off the rails, but would it be going off the rails because we've set it up to do so. Yeah, okay, so the exam one example I use in the New Yorker piece is the disasters with the Boeing uh, 737 Max. So the flight the flight correction module in it was, you know, was in a sense the source of uh two terrible air disasters in which hundreds of people died, 
But there's a sense in which it wasn't. What actually happened is the way they sold it, the way they withheld information about it, depending on how much you paid them, the way they trained people for it, the way the documentation was created, all this crazy stuff. Um, it's the surrounding stuff that created the disaster, not the core capability, which probably um, has been useful in general. Uh, and so uh, in the same way, this large model AI, it's not the thing itself, it's the surrounding material that determines whether it's malignant or not. And the when you deploy it under the assumption that it's an alien new um intelligence that it's a new uh, uh a new entity with its own point of view that should be treated as a creature instead of a tool when you do that you greatly increase the chances of a scenario similar to the the one that that befell uh passengers on on the boeing uh planes you know uh and and i do think that's a real possibility uh the malignancy though is in the surrounding material not in the core technology and 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 that's extremely important to understand uh i don't think anybody has claimed that the the flight path correction module shouldn't have existed i think what people are saying is that the pilots should have been well informed well trained and the ability to control it should have always been included not only for those who paid more. Uh, so that was where the errors were, and that's all been well-documented. Uh, and I think we're making sometimes some potentially similar mistakes with this, that if you um, if you have chatbots and you tell people, oh, this is this intelligent companion, you should be able to date it, you should be able to trust it, you should be able to do this and that, which I think most of us don't do, but some of us do, then the chances of something really bad happening do increase, you know, and as I say, we know that that's possible because we've seen it with the previous generation of much less sophisticated and smaller scale AI uh, as applied in social networks. So if the, if the threat really is coming from humans, if anything, then isn't the main worry that most people should have that this sort of technology or an accelerated version of it might fall into the hands of someone who has malign intent against a group or a country. I'm thinking here particularly about the situation that's happening in Ukraine right now. Russia has been one of the worst actors in misusing inter the internet and algorithms to, uh, to mess up people. Um, they, uh, for instance, it's documented that in the US, Russia created uh, enormous numbers of fake accounts of fake bots in order to sow divisions within the US. And um, it's impossible to attribute events specifically to something like this, but it certainly contributed to our Trump uh, era. And it undoubtedly contributed to Brexit. Uh, whatever one thinks of those things, uh, from Russia's point of view, those were in its interest. And of course, it's attempting those things in, in Ukraine. Um, I worry a little bit more about China because I don't Russia doesn't quite have the resources to pull off very large model very massive things uh right now you need a it's it's not that easy to do you need really huge computation resources available so you know I worry a little bit about China using just to be very blunt data from TikTok to mount an attack like that on the morning of a Taiwan invasion or something like that that's that's imaginable I hope they wouldn't do it I they're I've talked to a lot of people in the Chinese world, and I think almost all actually are much um, 
more conscientious and better intention that might be imagined. But there's always somebody, I mean, in any country, in any situation. So I do worry about it. And the antidote to it is universal clarity, context, transparency, which can only come about by revealing people, since revealing ideas is impossible because we don't know what an idea is. So every time there's some mashup, we should see where it came from. We should see what's mashed up. So uh, if that was just generally the case, then this whole type of attack would be nullified. Is this a kind of blockchain concept, but for artificial intelligence, the idea that everything would have a kind of stamp and a history to it? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be blockchain. Um, The problem with blockchain, of course, is its carbon footprint. So you could do something similar to blockchain that isn't a climate disaster, uh, as has been demonstrated by the Ethereum community and and others. So, uh, but, you know, but just as a placeholder, a blockchain-like thing is certainly the the right approach. We've established, though, that we already live with artificial intelligence. We are living in an artificially intelligent world. So how has that already changed us? Have you seen differences in our culture, our personal interactions, our society that you could attribute to this new living with AI? Our principal encounter with algorithms so far has been in the construction of feeds we receive in our apps. Um, uh, It's also uh, present for those of us who are not of the highest socioeconomic status in whether we get credit or not and in other things like that, and whether we get admitted to a university or not, or whether we're sent to prison or not, depending on what country we're we're talking about. So it's definitely true that algorithms have transformed us. Um, I would hope that the criticisms of that particular process that I've put forward and many others have put forward, um, of whom I could mention Tristan Harris, Trishana Zuboff, and many others, um, I would hope that that has illuminated and clarified some of the issues with algorithms in the previous generation. And uh, what could happen with the new AI is sort of worse versions of all of that. And given how bad that was, I don't think the doomerists are entirely wrong. You know, I think we could confuse ourselves into extinction with our own code. Uh, But once again, in order for us to really achieve that level of stupidity, we have to believe overly in the intelligence of the software. And I think we can, we have a choice. You're a musical man, you're a composer, and also someone who appreciates art as well as science. Do you think that there is going to be a shift in the way in which we prioritise organic or human-made art? Well, let's say we enter into a world of what I call uh, data dignity in the New Yorker piece. Um, Then a musician might provide music directly or might provide antecedent music that's mashed up within an algorithm, but in a way that the musician is still known and credited. You know, and we already see a little bit of that Um, in a lot of current music uh, for decades now. Somebody might provide the beat. Somebody else might provide samples and et cetera. Like there's already the sense of construction and mashup, especially in hip hop, but also just in pop music lately. And um, that has not destroyed musicians as long as it's acknowledged and transparent, you know, as long as we see the people. And so as long as we don't hide the people I don't think the mashup algorithms themselves do any damage to people. I think it's, it, as with the Boeing thing, it's a surrounding material. If we choose to use the mashup algorithms to hide the people from whom the antecedent stuff came from, then, of course, we do damage. But the thing doing damage is our hiding of ourselves, not the algorithm itself, which is actually just a simple kind of dumb thing. What I see in culture is as long as people understand what's going on, 
they find their way. So um, synthesizers haven't killed violins. There was a fear that they would. Um, and people, as long as people know the difference, as, as, as long as there's honesty and transparency about what's going on, um, we can go through seasons of things being a little more artificial and then less so. And that becomes <clears throat> cultural dynamic. And I, I trust people to handle that well. I know I might sound a bit like someone, you know, booing at Bob Dylan going electric, but I mean, take Spotify. It's almost totally wiped out good independent music. This is, there have been major technological advances in music that have actually totally obliterated any kind of creativity at these lower levels, more creative, more maverick levels of the music yeah, industry. Yeah, you're, you're quite correct about that. And I should point out, you still haven't closed your laptop, even though I asked you multiple times. I know, I know, so, I love it too so, much. <laughs> so, so you, so, all right. So uh, position heal thyself, I guess. But look, um, uh, you're absolutely correct about Spotify. And in fact, at the dawn of the uh, file copying era, I objected very strenuously to this idea. And there was um, a cultural movement about um, open source and open culture, which was selfily funded by Google um, and other tech companies, in, and especially in Europe with the pirate parties, uh, in which everybody thought, oh, it's terrible. Everything should be a mashup and we don't need to know who the musician was and they don't need to have bargaining power in a financial transaction and blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, I think that was a gigantic wrong turn. And it was a wrong turn that we can't afford to repeat with AI because it becomes amplified so much that it just could really destroy technology. So I, I completely agree with you about Spotify, but once again, the availability of music to move through the internet was not the problem. It's the surrounding material. Like what, what really screwed over musicians was not the core capability, but this idea that you'd build a business model on demoting the musician, demoting the person, and instead elevating the hub or the platform. Uh, and so uh, that's we can't afford to keep on doing that. We just can't. I think that, that that is the road that leads to our potential extinction through insanity. Sounds like human greed might be your answer to a lot of these problems, the thing that it comes down to. Well, I think it, humans are definitely responsible. Greed is one aspect of it, but it's not all of it. At the start of our conversation, we were talking about this sort of little boy fantasy question. And that's not greed exactly. Uh, there's a lot, like we can diagnose ourselves or each other forever, but I think the more important thing is what approach works better, you know? Uh, Cause I don't, I don't necessarily understand all human failings within myself or anybody else, but I do feel we can articulate ways to approach this that work better and are more practical, more actionable, more hopeful. And that has to be our first duty. Just last question for you, Jan, before I let you go. In, we've talked a lot about the worst case scenarios here. What is the best case scenario if we are the most optimistic version of ourselves and between the two of us can come up with some beautiful vision of the future with AI. What is that vision? Well, what I like about the new algorithms is that they help us uh, collaborate better. And so I mentioned one way that can work earlier, which is you could have a new flexible kind of a computer where you can ask it to change the way you present things to match your mood or your cognition under your own control so that you're less subservient to the computer. 
But another thing you can do is you can say, um, I have written one essay, my friend's written another essay, they're sort of different. Can you mash them up 12 different ways so we can read the mashups and maybe try to uh, out of, and this is not based on ideas, it's just based on kind of dumb math of combining words as they appeared in order and context. But um, you might be able to learn new options for consilience between different points of view that way, which could be extraordinary. Many people have been looking at in in, in the, the sort of humanistic AI world, the human-centered AI world, could we actually do this to help us understand potential for cooperation and policy that we might not see? If we seem to have irreconcilable differences about how to handle something like, you know, land use or something. Is there some possibility that this mashup thing might just uncover some strains of potential cooperation between us that are hard to see otherwise? I think it's worth trying. It might. So it might potentially break us out of our tribes that we all exist in and, and offer some human connection? It's sort of like if somebody, if a therapist says, try using different words and see if that might change how you think about something, uh, it, 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 it's not directly addressing our thoughts, but on the surface level, it actually can help us, but it's ultimately up to us, and there's no guarantee it'll help, but I believe it will in many cases. Um, I think it can help us improve our research, it can help us improve a lot of our practices. Uh, and I think as long as we acknowledge the people whose ideas are being mashed up by the programs, it can help us even broaden participation in the economy instead of throwing people out of work as is so often uh, foretold. I, I think we can use this stuff to our advantage and it's worth it to try. Uh, and at the very least, if we try to use it well, the these most awful um, ideas about us turning into the matrix or the terminator scenario you know skynet uh, those things become vanishingly unlikely if we're revealing the people and uh treating it as a human project instead of uh an alien intelligence i i think we really can and must do that well that glimpse of hope i will take thank you jeremy right, so cool. much thank Post you so much for your time i'll never look at it again i promise for you ah, <laughs> So with my laptop firmly in the bin, that was Jaron Lanier, the maverick computer scientist live from Silicon Valley, telling us why he thinks we should stop and think a little before jumping to any hasty or hysterical conclusions about the future of artificial intelligence. He is really standing up against a lot of his colleagues and friends in taking a less doomerous approach to this issue, but I still had to think there was something very sinister about his potential view for a future living with even the best case scenario of AI. Thanks to you for watching. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.